This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Walton's, Aluma Trailers, Onyx Hunt, Nutrisource Pet Foods, and by Chief Upland. Today I'm talking with Pheasants Forever State Coordinator in South Dakota and North Dakota. Matt Morlock plays a huge part in the Habitat Organization's success in those states, plus he's a diehard bird hunter like you and I. We'll chat about wintering conditions, the current CRP enrollment period, and what that means for you and the birds. Plus, we'll look ahead to the Upland Bird Hunting Party called Pheasant Fest. Nutrisource Pet Foods just launched a new product that can give our active hunting dogs a big boost when they need it most. It's called Kampucha. Nutrisource Kampucha, inspired, of course, by kombucha is a savory, meaty bone broth topper that's packed with activated postbiotics from a fermentation product that thrives in the gut to promote a healthy gut ecosystem for digestion support. That's a mouthful. But what it means for us bird dog owners is that we now have a healthy topper to pour over our dog's food if they're ever stressed or won't eat while on a long hunting trip. Kampucha is offered in three flavors, turkey, beef, and chicken, and comes in a 12-ounce pouch. Nutrisource high-performance dog foods provide exceptional, healthy nutrition for active dogs of every breed, just like my dog, Daisy. Now they have a topper that gives our four-legged hunters another edge when they need it the most. Check out their full lineup of dog foods at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host. I'm back. Brandon, good to be here. Good to be with you. Great to have you here. Congratulations, Thank Travis. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I missed last week. If you caught the show, Scott Franzen filled in and uh, did a fine job telling a difficult story last week with a friend of his. But uh, you guys didn't roast me at all. I no. was disappointed. I listened to it and it was like, come on, what else? You got to do better than that. See, he can. He's your boss. Sure. I work with you a lot more often than I yeah. work, you know, so I stayed away just, you know, because, and sure. I respect you. Him, sure. I don't know what his deal was. He had plenty of opportunities <laughs> I, to rip on you. It was weak. Yeah, it, it was, was pretty weak. It was yeah, very yeah. weak. But I guess if you got nothing bad to say about somebody, what are you going to do, make it up? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, all right. Well, better luck next time, Scott. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, I appreciate all of the uh, the love that came our way from our family. Uh, we just had a beautiful baby girl. Uh, God has blessed us richly. This is our fourth child. We are um, trying to transition now into yeah, or like imagine. get get uh, <laughs> get uh, our new new family. Um, I don't know rhythm or whatever you call it. I'm not adjusting. Sl- adjusting. Yes. yes, I am. I'm, if I don't make sense today, it's because I haven't gotten <laughs> as much sleep as I probably should have. But I'm back. It's good to be here, and uh, we get to talk hunting again. Matt Morlock is our guest today. Uh, Matt, I'm going to bring you in, and uh, Brandon. I I have a story for both of you that right. I just it's just like you you can't even hardly make it up. All right. All right. So I'm in the hospital. And we're just about to check out. So I've got my wife and my newborn baby and my phone rings. And it goes, you know, it's a number that I don't know. So I let it go to voicemail. Don't think anything of it. I figured they're trying to, you know, call for my car's warranty or something. You know what I mean? (laughs) And uh, so then we go through all the checkout to get all the paperwork done. We leave the hospital. We drive home. And my mom and her husband are watching our, our kids at home. And of course, my dog. And uh, so, I we're coming around the corner into our neighborhood, and I see my my mom and and her husband in the woods in our backyard. And I'm like, "What in the world? <laughs> she knows we're coming home. Why is she? Why is she out in the? It's like two it's below. Cold, or yeah. It's cold. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so we get home. They get to meet. They meet. They meet our daughter for the first time because nobody can go in the hospitals right mm-hmm. now, COVID restrictions. So uh, we're excited to introduce our daughter to our kids and my mom, who is just like dying to meet her. Oh, right? Of course. And she comes in, she goes, Daisy's gone. And I'm <laughs> no, like, no. oh my Not gosh, real. no way. My dog is gone. And, and I'm like, all right, 
I'll, let's, here's my daughter. <laughs> let's do this. The kids are excited. They've been waiting three days for mom to come home. So I introduced the, the baby to our family. And then I'm like, all right, guys, I got to go find our dog real quick. So I go out into the back and my dog does not run away anymore. She's very well trained. She knows where she's supposed to go. And I'm looking through the woods, wherever she might be, wherever she could go. And usually I do a, a whistle and she comes running instantly wherever she is. Sure. And, but she's never far away. She's on our property or our neighbor loves her as much as we do. So he's like, make sure she can, you know, train her to stay in my yard too. Yeah. He wanted to extend where she could go. So anyway, um, I've looked everywhere and then I thought, well, I'm going to check my phone to see if anybody called. So I listened to this voicemail that sure enough. Yeah. And I get a voicemail. Hey, I found your dog. Uh, give me a call. She seems like a great dog. Uh, I want to get her back to you. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, great. Good. You know, yeah. so we found her. And I'm thinking, what the heck happened here? So I call him back and I say, yeah, hey, you found my dog. Thank you so much. Um, and, and, I, and he goes, well, I'm in, you know, such and such, which is still the town your that I live in. Yeah. Yeah. Not my neighborhood, but he's still in the town. Okay. And I go, where did you find her? And he said, well, she was in this development, kind of explained it. And I was like, that's my development. <laughs> so, and I gave him, and I said, well, I'll, we're, I'm home. Um, bring her on over, please. Uh, thank you so much for finding her. Yeah. So in my mind, I'm thinking she was like running down the road or something like that. He pulls up and, uh, and I go, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm so sorry for all the hassle. And um, I go, where did you find her? Because I wanted to know. Yeah. Uh, and he points to the center of my front yard. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, man. I'm like, what you t- you took her out like at that point I didn't know what to say <laughs> right well thanks for taking thanks my for dog taking my dog from out my, of my yard. yard like my mom lets her out to take a dump <laughs> this guy sees her and I go and he goes she looked lost and I'm like I I I was just like speechless <laughs> this is what she looks like <laughs> yes yeah, she's a, she is this is her she I don't know if she has a um, found look a lost look I'm like what uh why did you take the dog out of my yard? And the look was probably confusion as to why is this guy walking up to me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what happened was the neighbor across the street in our neighborhood was selling her house and she had people looking oh. and he happened to come and look. Well, my dog was, she loves people. She just like happy tail. Here's somebody I don't know. Yep. And then she knows that she can't cross the the line and yeah. go onto the road. So she like, will pace back and forth in our yard, you know? And I'm thinking he must've pulled up and parked right on the edge of our property. And here's this dog sitting there who's wagging her tail. Like she is with you right now, right. Brandon. Yeah. I'm just excited to see you. <laughs> and he touch. thinks she's lost. Why in the world? And the first thing in my mind, I'm like vehicles in the driveway. This is, you know, like dog tracks all over in the snow. Yep. You know, there's nothing here that says this is a lost dog. What are you thinking? And why would you just take the dog, put her in your car and not at least, at least knock on any of the doors, right. you know, try the, the one, the one that it's the in. one that she's in. Yeah. Yeah. I, man, have you ever heard anything like this? No, no, I have not. <laughs> that He's takes trying. a cake. I, I had even, something similar, but it was out in the country. I could see um, if she's running I, through I, I, a I could field. See that. Right. Exactly. We were at, you know, we had, we were walking a field and at the time I had my golden that was old and deaf and he got lost and he went to the end of the field and just sat in the ditch huh. and a car came by and tried to pick him up, but not in my own yard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. And I feel bad because bless my mom, she's taking care of three kids for three days and my dog and she's always nervous because when Daisy was a pup, she used to run. I go, no, she's she's very well trained. She knows exactly where she can and can't go. She doesn't go outside unless she gets a command to go outside. And, yeah. you know, you say her name, yep. Daisy, here, and she comes running right back into the door. And I'm like, there's nothing to worry about. So she's panicking. You know, she lost the dog. and But I still can't, like, I, I don't know if this guy was legitimately trying to steal her, but I will say this was a, this was a piece of information that I received early on from uh, somebody that said, put on the collar something that would deter somebody from stealing your dog. For instance, Daisy's, I, maybe I shouldn't even say this on yeah. the show, but it says needs daily meds. Sure. So this guy might think, crap, if I steal his dog and she needs meds. He mentioned that in the voicemail. I see she needs daily meds. I want to make sure I get her back to you. Well, that's good to put the awareness out there regardless. Right. Cause 
What if what if you had one of those invisible fences too, where the dog's hooked up, getting you know its little zap or whatever while she's he's getting taking lit it up out of the yard? Yeah. For sure. I mean, you never know what somebody right. has, and you don't just pick up a dog from someone's yard. I can't I believe it. Weird. I could not believe it. I I thought that was the most bizarre thing, and I I still didn't like. I didn't know what to say to this guy. I told him thank you. Right. I tried to make small right. talk, but I just wanted to like get inside with my kids and my newborn and everything. So, yeah. Right. I guess take stock of the guy, the person who did it, their vehicle or whatever. Whoa, just, just be yeah. aware. And I was like, yeah. you buying the house? And, I, yeah. and he goes, no, I'm not going to buy it. I was like, thank goodness. I don't know. I feel bad about saying that, but that's kind of how I feel. Hey, you would know where your dog is, at least. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so that's my story. I I don't know if, it, if let me know if you're listening and you've heard something more ridiculous than that. Um, I hope you have not. But thankfully, wow. my dog is obviously back and... Uh, now we, we can just laugh about the ridiculousness of it. But Matt Morlock, thank you for uh, taking time out of your day. Um, I don't want to waste any more of it. We'll get right into it. Um, you live in what part of South Dakota? I live in Brookings, so right on the eastern border, right by North, right by Minnesota. Um, yeah, gotcha. so I'm barely into it, but um, I get as luckily with my job, I get to explore both South Dakota and North Dakota frequently, and get to take it all in. Yeah. And you've worked with Pheasants Forever for how many years now? Just over 19. Dang. Yeah. Dang. And Who would have thought that? Do you enjoy it as much now as the first day you started or more? You can lie. I like it more. Um, the challenges are, are, are always there. And it's always changing. And, you know, it's just the atmosphere working at Pheasants Forever. It's like a big, happy family. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's never really a job. Um, and it's just a fun place to be at. Well, your title as of, you know, the last time I talked to you was state coordinator for South Dakota. And now big man takes over North Dakota too, huh? Yeah. Yeah. We affectionately call it mega Dakota now. Mega Dakota. I like it. I like it. What yeah. do you, what do you do uh, as, as an, like an overseer of both states? I mean, who are you overseeing in particular? Yep. So it, between the two states, we actually have, when we're at full staff, we have 32 staff between those two states. Okay. Um, so I'm overseeing the staff, you know, doing the mundane stuff of timesheets and expense reports and all that fun stuff that my wildlife degree never prepared me for. Yeah. Um, but then I also um, work with all of our partners in building new partnerships, um, both with state agencies and commodity groups and other NGOs in the conservation world. Um, and then build programs too. Um, so kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. Sure. Um, sure. But yeah, with both those states, it's, they're the same job in both states. Um, and just, yeah, working with our partners and it's just, it's really fun and it's easy because we have such an incredible staff in these two states that my job's pretty easy. I get to be a cheerleader and their work precedes themselves. So everybody's wanting to, to work with us and it's, so it's a fun place to be at. Right. Well, I've been fortunate to, uh, spend some time in the field with you and with several of your staff, uh, the workers yep. that you oversee or get to work with. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. But you you live in a place where uh, birds flourish. So it, it, that in itself has to be a lot of fun. And I know you um, are currently in the middle. You're, you're like me. You've got a young family. Uh, yep. But you're currently in the middle of transforming your own uh, soil into a wildlife haven, at least when I hunted with you, was it two years ago? That we yeah, had? it was already two years ago now. Dang yeah, it. it's been, we got to make this happen more frequently. I would really like that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so explain the project that you're working on and where yeah. it's at, where it started uh, and where it's at today. Yeah, so you know, I got lucky on many levels. I want to put it out many levels. Mm -hmm. I outkicked my, my coverage and my wife, I actually married a farm girl. Um, so the property that I'm working with is, is my my in-laws family. Um, and one of those things where some people marry for money, some people marry for land. I like the way you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I get accused of that, but I really didn't. <laughs> yeah. I just got lucky. Yes. No, I know. <laughs> I want that on record. Yep. <laughs> but no, um, it's one of those things where, and my father-in-law was, was just a great guy and he was a farmer first, but in reality it was, I think he was a hunter first and he farmed because it let him hunt. Um, I remember the first fall that I'd been dating my wife and she, it was getting to be 
first week of October. And she uh, said, you know, you probably need to go out and probably help my dad get the rest of the corn out. Cause you know, it's going to be pheasant season here pretty quick. And he'll just shut the combine off and go pheasant hunting for weeks and weeks and weeks. So if you could go help him, that'd be great. And I'm like, what, you're, you're making that up. But it was true. I mean, pheasant season rolled around and his mind went to hunting and he would leave the corn in the field if he had to, to go hunting. Oh, do you feel like that's a, you, you obviously work with a lot of landowners over the years. Do you feel like that's kind of the mindset of the majority or the minority out there? Um, the minor, I would say it's the minority just from the fact that I mean, that's your livelihoods. Yeah. Um, and you know, he was older, his kids were growing up, so he didn't have to worry about supporting the family so much so he could make that switch. Um, but it's, you know, it, he was just in that, that, that spot where he could do that. And that's what he enjoyed. Um, and unfortunately we lost him back in 2019, <clears throat> sorry, in 2019, um, and so from there, I kind of took over along with my helping with my brother-in-law, but doing the management on this property. Um, and we kind of just decided we needed to honor kind of how Jim lived and farm what makes sense to farm the really good ground and the rest of it. And you know, let's put it into conservation. Um, did, so did we, he we have some of those, path. some of those acres already in wildlife habitat or was it all farm field? It was, it, he was one of those guys, you know, he farmed with old equipment. He farmed where he could farm and the rest of it, he just kind of let it sit. It wasn't in any programs or anything like that. Um, and in years when he could farm it, he would farm it. He just, that was the old way of farming um, that he still kind of did. It wasn't uber intensive like some folks do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he didn't have it in any programs. I'd finally convinced him to put some of it in CRP the fall previous. Um, and it had just gotten seeded. Um, so he never saw that, but it's made a huge difference already on that one piece of ground. What, before you, um, put any of the acres into habitat CRP, how many pheasants do you think? Well, first of all, do we want to say maybe like how much land are you talking about here? And then how many pheasants do you believe lived on that property before you started managing for wildlife and how many live on it today? Yep. So we've really focused it in on, on three quarters right now. Um, there's, there's about 1500 acres total there, but there's three quarters that we've really focused in on kind of around the home site. Um, and, and previous to that, Oh, that's a great question. Um, we probably had hundred or so pheasants on it at any given time. Um, and so far, you know, we've put 80 acres of CRP in on one quarter, um, already. And on that piece, this was the first year where we had really good grass on it. Um, I bet you just on that quarter now where we have a couple hundred pheasants on it. Wow. Um, next spring we're going to be doing, we're going to be planting another 160 acres of grass down on another piece, um, along with about 10 acres of, of trees, um, and then we're going to be doing, we have some pasture land on that same that same half section that we're going to add pipelines and tanks and fencing um, and, and bring in a rotational grazing system over there. Um, okay. So we can start getting that grassland to also um, produce more pheasants. And you know, if you manage it just a little bit differently, it's producing wildlife too. So um, it's kind of a fun project. It, it gets to... Uh, gets me back in the biologist role. I don't get to do that much with my current job. So sure. um, playing with both the pasture land and, and showing the benefits there, then also taking that land because none of this was very good crop land and putting it into grass. Um, and just, it's going to be fun to watch that, that last little bit and see what it does. But you know, so, in one year, it, it more than doubled our bird population on that one quarter. Wow. That's incredible. I bet you get more, um, more, uh, not, not appreciation, but more of a thrill, I guess, out of seeing birds show up into that stuff than actually pulling the trigger. Oh yeah. It's been a weird, it's been a weird mental shift from my twenties and thirties where it was about, I didn't go out and, and have fun and shoot a bunch of birds and stuff like that to now. I just enjoy getting out with others, especially my kids, um, and watching them do it and just seeing the change and transformation of the land and getting out on the tractor and mowing the grass and, you know, getting the weeds, taking care of the weeds and stuff like that. That's where I get my rush nowadays is just watching that transformation and, and taking care of that land. Very cool. And what part of South Dakota is that in? 
It's in that James River Valley, um, the central James River Valley, kind of um, between Redfield and Huron. Mm-hmm. So you're just in the prime, prime pheasant belt. Yep. Yeah, I, it's a perfect spot to be at. And your kids are how old? I got a 14-year-old and a 5-year-old. Nice. So your 14-year-old yeah. probably out hunted you this year, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. He, and he, he doesn't let me live that down. Um, <laughs> he, he shot a couple deer, and I didn't shoot any, and he managed to point that out. And yeah, that was probably the biggest rush I've, I've gotten in a long time was he shot his first buck this year. Um, oh, man. And were you sitting a, with him when it happened? Yep. We were sitting in the blind together, and it was early in the morning, and I wasn't really paying attention to that. I was watching the pheasants fly around. <laughs> and I'll say, he goes, hey, there's a buck. I think I'm going to shoot it. I'm like, okay. And I hadn't even found it yet. And he, he shoots. Turns out he made about a 250 yard shot. I would have not probably said, go ahead and take that shot. Wow. <laughs> but made a perfect shot. And it was, it was just one of the more happiest moments I've ever had was watching him get excited and going up to that deer. And it's just, it's been a fun, fun transition. That is awesome. So next time I reach out to you to uh, film a hunt together, I think I'm actually going to be reaching out to you to get your son's contact information so I can set the hunt up with yeah. him because I've seen you shoot and it yeah, sounds like your son's suspect. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like your son didn't get your <laughs> shooting skills with that, which is, which is refreshing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's not, it's humbling to get out shot by your kid. Oh, I love it. I, love I think it. on pheasants this year, he went, he went five for five on on two hunts that I was out there with him. Um, and he went five for five and I did not. <laughs> That's exactly the way that it's supposed to go. Well, yep. let's, let's take a look at a bigger scale of where the state, or I should say the states of the Dakotas um, are at right now. I've talked to a couple landowners and, you know, some have said we're, our moisture is looking okay some have said we have no snow on the ground, birds are fine, but we need we need the moisture, obviously. Can you give us kind of an overview of what we're seeing for winter conditions right now in the Dakotas? Yep. You know, for South Dakota, we're definitely having a, a tropical winter. There's not much snow on the ground anywhere in the state. Um, so I think we're in a, we're in over, we're in overwinter great. Um, but there is some concern um, about moisture. Now, if I would have talked to you yesterday, I would have been really pessimistic on this, but it just so happens watching the news this morning, they're predicting some snow in the coming weeks and some more moisture coming in. Nice. Um, and they're saying that the systems are setting up for, for a wet or an average spring. Okay. Um, so that, that made me a lot more optimistic this morning. I'm like, well, there goes my whole negative tone for the podcast. Yeah, good. Well, leave that <laughs> negativity out of there. Right, we don't right. need that. Yeah. Well, that's so, fantastic. No, so it's, it's, it, well, obviously, we we hope that the forecast comes true. I know a lot of people hear a forecast and say, I'll believe it when I see it. But, right. I mean, that's encouraging, at least. Um, it is. It, I was I was really down um, that we we're going we're gonna to have a two-year drought, you know, because last year was rough. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we've kept those birds through the winter. Um, I was just out at the farm the other day, and we have plenty of birds moving around. So I'm not worried about winter mortality or anything like that. But this was kind of a, this spring we need to have happen because we didn't have a good hatch last year. Um, it was just so dry that we lost a lot of chicks. Um, when they came off the nest, they couldn't find insects because there was no moisture for those insects to grow. Mm-hmm. So our, our, our birds are pushing it in age, I'm guessing. A lot of those birds. Because um, they carried over last year was a mild winter, so we carried over a bunch. Um, gotcha. So luckily we've had two mild winters out of it. But if, we get, if we get the moisture like they're talking, next year's going to be a phenomenal year, I got a feeling. Well, how quickly can a population rebound if they are given, you know, what they what we want them to have, which is enough grass to raise a brood in and enough moisture for the bugs to be there too? Yep. Now that's a that's a nice thing about about pheasants is they're very they're very prolific. Um and they can bounce back really fast. Um you know, if you have the optimal conditions, that hen can can raise five, six chicks to maturity, and that just that's you know taking your population by five right there with that bird. So they they can rebound fast, um, and we didn't fall too far behind last year just because we had so many birds coming through that winter. Um, so I think as long as those conditions are good and we get regrowth. I mean, last year with the drought, 
there's a lot of hang going on with CRP and stuff like that, which was needed to be done. Those producers were in rough spots. Um, as long as we can get some moisture and we can get regrowth, that those grasses should respond really good. Um, so I, we actually are setting up to have great habitat this spring um, and great reproduction um, as long as we get that moisture. I, I, I have a question for you, and it's <clears throat> it's not necessarily controversial, but I will say that I've talked to some hunters uh, about this, and or they've talked to me about it, and the, the opinion they have about CRP um, is that a lot of the hang that's going on or that went on last year, they said, I, I'm okay with that as long as it's needed. And I have driven by farmers that have a lot of bales on their property that haven't been touched for what looks to be three, four, five years. To me, they don't need to hay that grass. They're double dipping on that. Do you feel like that's an accurate statement? I know that puts you in a tough spot to say this because you're working <laughs> yeah, with, with those landowners, but you know, I see what they're saying when they, when they bring something like that up, just because they're given the opportunity to go out and, and hay that ground doesn't mean that they should. Right. And I, and I get that. I get that. I, mean, I hear that. And I understand where people are coming with that. Um, you know, a lot of times you got to, people need to understand that producers are always, preparing for the worst so they have they're, they're trying to stockpile extra hay um in previous years that they probably didn't need but after it sits there for a couple of years um there's really no forage quality to it so they have these bales stacked up that are pretty much not worth much more than protecting livestock from the wind at that point um, and that's where a lot of those folks were at was that hay that they had stacked up that people see wasn't good hay okay um and would actually probably put their cattle into a a negative situation because there was just no forage quality left in that hay. Um, so they, it, it looked bad and the optics of it are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, they, they needed that hay pretty bad. Um, and, you know, but it brings up a great point and that's something, you know, like I said, we hear a lot is what we're trying to do is get the rules in that CRP program transitioned a little bit and incentivize that, incentivize the program so that producers can actually come in and actually just graze on the CRP acres. Okay. That way, that way we know they're getting used for going through the cow on, on that site. Plus it cycles nutrients better. Um, and then not, not have to worry about the hay issue. Yeah. Um, and just, no, I, I it's think better that's... for the land and it's better for everything. If those cows are just actually out on the CRP hang or grazing themselves. <laughs> themselves. I, I think that's a great compromise. I really do. Is there any movement on that? There is. We've gotten the rules changed so that they can kind of, it's more flexible to use the, the live, the cattle themselves on the land instead of haying. They can get in there earlier. Because um, also the studies show that having the cattle on the ground grazing has less impact on the ground nesting birds than the haying equipment does. Um, yep. So therefore, you, they can get in there earlier doing that and things like that. Um, things like that. But what's holding them back is, you know, most CRP is on old cropland. So there wasn't fence, there wasn't water, there wasn't any of that infrastructure there to put the cows on them. Yep. And that's what we're fighting now and we're working. You know, Jim Inglis and our staff and Bethany are about in D.C. are working hard um, trying to get those rules changed so that we can get cost share for infrastructure on CRP land so that they can actually get out there and do it. If you're an avid outdoorsman or woman on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you need to haul. Aluma Trailers... They've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa, right here in the good old USA. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say Aluma trailers tow gear like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumakln.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. For everything that gets you outdoors, Aluma Trailers will help you get there. There are many places that you can buy products to process and prepare your meat. There are not a lot of places that you can buy those products and learn how to use them from experts. Walton's is that place. 
They have everything, and I mean everything, for your cooking and wild game processing needs. Plus, they have the experts on staff to help you learn how to use their products to get the best results. John Tremblay hosts their Meatgistics podcast, live streams, and live chats, which are interactive learning tools for the meat processing community. From sausage making to smoking, recipes to seasoning, and so much more, they've got you covered. Walton's products ship the same day you order, and while they have nearly every brand you'd ever want to purchase, they also have their own line of Walton's grinders, mixers, stuffers, slicers, vacuum sealers, and so much more. Walton's, they have everything but the meat. Well, as long as we're on CRP, uh, right now is an open enrollment period, so explain where we're at on CRP, how many acres have been added to the program, and... I know we've got landowners that listen to this show, but also it's just a lot of people that care about wildlife and conservation. We all know that CRP creates great water uh, or clean water and helps our wildlife population. So if you know of a friend that could potentially benefit from this, uh, you know, maybe they could say, hey, open enrollment is right now. Uh, Can you go into detail on where we stand right now, Matt? Yeah, I know this is actually, if, if you have any friends that are thinking about CRP or or any just any farmer friends in general, now is the time if you want to get into CRP because I, you know, I, I've been around the CRP program for just about 20 years now and it's never been as good as it is right now. Um, when, you say, it, uh, when you say it's never been as good as it is right now, what does that mean? Yeah, rental rates are, are up. Um, they've, they've readjusted rental rates again. Um, three, four years ago, they were at historic lows, and now they're at historic highs for rental rates. Um, there's just been added bonuses and things like that. You know, people are really, like you said, interested in the climate right now, um, and carbon credits and carbon storage. Well, CRP is awesome at storing carbon. Um, so they've added some bonus payments to the program to do that, to get more people into it. So they've really incentivized the payment end of it. Okay. But the other thing they've done is they're providing 100% cost share. Um, it's 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 a little not misleading, but it, it comes in parts, so you don't get all the cost share right away. Um, you get fifty percent of the cost share early when you once you seed the grasses or plant the trees. Then after it's established, you get forty percent more cost share, and then finally in year five, you get the last ten percent. But um, you know, so the cost share is extremely high right now. Rental rates are high right now. Um, we have a general sign up going on, like you said, through I think it's March eleventh. Um, so you have that going on, plus you have continuous CRP out there, um, where if you have certain environmental conditions like wetlands and things like that, you can come in and sign up at any time for it. So there's a, the, the opportunities out there are endless. The payments are really good. Um, so if you have those, like I said, those farmer friends out there that have marginal land, um, you know, they're grousing about tractors getting stuck and being hard on the equipment in certain areas. I'd encourage them to get in there and take a look at it because it's not like it was four or five years ago. It's it's very competitive, very incentivized right now. Yeah, uh, is there a minimum of acreage to qualify, and are there certain parts of the country that they're focusing on, or is this nationwide? It's nationwide, and there's not a minimum. There's there's so many CRP practices through either general CRP or continuous CRP. As long as it has cropping history. You should be able to get it in without much, much of an issue in one of those practices. How many, how many acres have been added to it to the sign up this year compared to last? Oh man, that's a that's a great question. <laughs> um, I know in South Dakota we stayed about constant. Um, I think we added about twenty thousand acres last year, um, but that's kind of deceiving in that there's a, a whole bunch of contracts at FSA right now that are kind of working through the system that through the continuous signup. Um, there were so many people that came in with these new payments that they, they've gotten backlogged um, and they're working through it. So that number is going to jump because um, 20,000 acres in a state like South Dakota doesn't seem like a lot. Right. Um, but the good thing is we weren't going backwards where in North Dakota, we've stayed about constant. We haven't really added any acres up in North Dakota, um, but it's, you know, demands, our farm bill biologists are talking about all the demand they have. Um, so I think next year's numbers are going to look a lot better. Uh, we're going to see a, a bigger increase. 
we have the capacity, I believe, to add a couple million acres of CRP in the United States. Is that yep. accurate? Yep. To get under the national cap, um, we have we have several million acres that we can enroll. So Do you think I don't see any limitations that? coming there. Boy, I hope so. <laughs> is there just why would we not? I guess is my question. If they're com- if the rates are competitive, why would we not hit that? It's just getting word out. I think and getting producers to understand. Yeah, you know, we come, we came off of four or five years ago. It was CRP wasn't competitive at all, um, and a lot of folks at that point were looking at it because commodity prices were down too. Mm-hmm. So they went in the offices, and the payments just were not there. And it wasn't. It wasn't. It was at a point where it wasn't even a question. It just didn't work. Um, so we're having to build past that. Um, and get folks re-energized to come in and sign up that it, it looks totally different. Um, so that's been kind of the lag there, I think, is just getting past that. Um, that perception that uh, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work anymore. It, the payments aren't good. And getting people to understand the payments have changed um, and getting in there and taking a look. Gotcha. Um, what does this mean for you and I and everybody listening to the show when we add more acres on the ground? I mean, it seems like it should be obvious, but is there a tangible number of acres equates to a number of birds or no? Um, Not really. I mean, it's, it's, you still have other factors like weather and things like that into it that you can't put a tangible number on it, but you know, you take that, that quarter that I, we have at our farm, we added out of the quarter, we added 80 acres into it. And my population, I know doubled in one year doing that. Um, and a lot of questions or a lot of things we hear in the past. Well, that's on private land. Me as an average sportsman, that's going to go out and hunt. We don't have access to that private land. Mm-hmm. So it really doesn't mean anything to me, but in reality, those birds move so much that if you're raising a bunch of birds on this private CRP field, there's no doubt going to be positive impacts to that game production area next door. And then the area, your population is just going to grow. So even if it's on private land, it still has, you know, that benefit to the average sportsman that's out there beating the bush on public ground. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And specifically now I know where you live and where you're uh, transitioning in this wildlife paradise, but you have uh, public acres, right? That butts up to your land. So obviously it's going to have a positive impact on that property as well. Uh, Just, you know, in general, uh, the more habitat we have is a win for everybody. I think. It is. And the years, we used to think that a pheasant spent its whole life at one square mile, you know, with, with technology and GPS collars and all that kind of stuff. We found out these birds move a heck of a lot more than we thought they did. How far do they go? Um, you know, they'll move three, four miles. Um, there's, there's hen, especially nesting hens. There is a, a study down in that winter country in South Dakota that they had a hen that nested lost her first nest. She packed up and moved over 20 miles really? to another spot and, and went again and raised a successful nest then. Um, what, what was the difference in the, the move? Like what was the difference in the habitat? Did you go in or did they immediately look to see why she moved there? Um, you know, it went from, she was in a pasture where she was at that first time. She actually moved to a, a winter wheat field that had grown up and gotten enough cover in it. Hmm. Um, so she actually moved to an egg field. Um, but we don't know why. I mean, that's a tremendous, and, and that's an anomaly. I mean, most birds aren't going to move 20 some miles, but they definitely have the potential to do it. Um, but definitely they're going to move two, three, four miles wow. um, between summer and winter and, and things like that. One thing that we just talked a lot about pheasants, but one thing that has really sparked a lot of interest in the upland uh, world specifically in the Dakotas and Montana, the Hungarian partridge population has really come back. Uh, and it's the western side of North Dakota, eastern Montana, that's where I've hunted them. Um, and I know a lot of friends out there, too, that you know I've hunted and they just rave about it. What's the Hungarian partridge population looking like in South Dakota? Uh, it's not as good as those states. Um, it's, it's, if you get up in that lemon country... Yep. In that area, there's still some birds there. Uh, we've just, they are so strongly dependent on small grains um, that we just, in South Dakota, that that crop has kind of fell out of favor. And we just don't have a lot of small grains around anymore. Um, when you say small remember, grains, you're saying wheat, barley, oats? Wheat, 
oats, um, flax. They really like flax. Okay. Um, if you can find that. Um, growing up, I grew up in Watertown, which is just on the eastern edge, once again, of, of South Dakota. And we used to shoot quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. Um, in that country, now you can't find them. They're not there anymore. So we've kind of gotten to South Dakota in that bad spot where we've, the majority of the state, we've just totally lost them. So bringing them back is, even if the small grains come back, it's going to take a long time. And you're um, mostly corn and soybeans in, in South Dakota, right? Yeah, it's predominantly corn and soybeans at this point over here. Um, a few sunflowers. And we are seeing a big shift where we're seeing more small grains come back. It's just for those Hungarian partridge to come back, it's going to take a long time just because they, they were just gone totally. How about uh, sharp-tailed grouse? Sharp-tailed grouse are looking great. Um, our let counts were down a little bit this year, but they came off of historic highs. So guys I've talked to, unfortunately, for the first time in a lot of years, I didn't get out and chase any grouse last year or this year. Um, but guys I talked to said they were still seeing good bird numbers um, across the state. The northeast part of South Dakota, which most people don't think about, yeah, um, really had good numbers this year. I got some friends that are going to hate me for saying that. Um, <laughs> it's kind of been their little their little secret area to go and hunt, and they don't have to worry about pressure and stuff like that. But no, our, our sharp-tailed grouse populations are looking really good. And so if you so if you get in that east central, the prairie chickens are looking really good too. Yeah, that's that's something that I I hunted the prairie chicken in Fort Pierre last, not, not 2021, but 2020. And I was just amazed at the prairie chicken population. And I know a lot of people said that this was extraordinary, but, um, I I think, you know, what I heard this year was not quite as strong, still really good. Uh, but, but it's interesting that you say that the glacial lakes area in the Northeast part of South Dakota has seen an increase in sharp tail grouse. I, do you know, is that carried over into Minnesota? I don't know that. That would be a great question to ask. Um, I think if you, I think you get up in, in that northwest edge of the state, they're doing really well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but man, my knowledge stops at the South Dakota, North Dakota border. You just now. can't cross the border. Come on, man. <laughs> I can't do it. I, just, uh, I, 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 live, I live in God's country and it's hard <laughs> to move over. It's, when people say I live in God's country, I was talking to my boys about this the other day because we were watching something and then the guy said, I live in God's country. And then later on, and he was talking about, I think, in Florida. And then somebody else, we were reading a story before bed and the, the kid in the story said, well, his dad said, we live in God's country and he's in Montana. Yep. And my son goes, well, is God's country everywhere? I said, yes. And everywhere that I go... Everybody that lives out in the country says this is God's country, you know, and it could be lakes, it could be mountains, it can be forests, it can be prairie, it can be wide open. But uh, I've heard so many people in all my travels say that I live in God's country and I I always agree with them. I'm like, absolutely. This is incredible out here. That's the beauty of that statement is it's up to your interpretation of what you love. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, speaking of what you love, I think let's transition to um, the upcoming Pheasant Fest because we are now less than a month away, Matt. My goodness. Less than a month from the biggest upland party of the year in Omaha, Nebraska. We're going to Pheasant Fest. Uh, How much of a role do you play in planning for that? Oh, it's more and more every year. I feel like, um, you know, for me, I, I get the pleasure of kind of overseeing the habitat end of stuff. So the landowner help desk area and the habitat stage area, that's kind of my little corner of Pheasant Fest. Um, and I can tell you, we've changed stuff up for folks that, that have come every year. Um, things have changed. Um, so I, I come check it out again. It's not the same old, same old where, it's just a bunch of computers and farmers and landowners sitting down at computers. Um, it's more going to be more interactive this year. Um, we're going to be able to have a lot of biologists sitting around having conversations with folks. If you want to talk about hunting in certain parts of the country and things like that, that's the place to come and hang and talk with the biologists and hear about how the birds are doing and things like that. Um, and over on the habitat stage, we got a list of speakers. That's just phenomenal this year, both for folks interested in quail people interested in pheasants, um, people interested in policy. We're going to have a, a really cool panel discussion on the habitat stage about the North American Grasslands Act. Okay. Uh, we've, we've got Howard's going to be on the stage. Lantani's going to be on the stage. Um, a bunch of others that are 
our heads of NGOs like Pheasants Forever that are going to be on that stage talking about the North American Grasslands Act. Um, it's going to be moderated by Ryan Callahan. Um, there's just going to be a lot of cool stuff going on in that neck of the woods. Um, and it seems, sounds like, you know, talking with other area leads, the game has been notched up across the board um, on all the different areas of Pheasant Fest this year. Nice. Nice. Well, I don't think word on the street is one of your best speakers is going to be on a different stage. <clears throat> yeah, I've heard that. Um, yeah. <laughs> What's his name? I, uh, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> yeah. So I was asked to uh, present on what's the other stage? that you guys have presentations going on. Oh, we've got, we've got a cooking stage. Okay. Man, you're, you're putting me on the spot. I know it's the path to the upland stage. We have a pollinator area. We have a kid's area. Um, it's, you know, if you can think upland hunting, there's a stage, there's a bird dog. There's a, there's a whole stage dedicated to dogs and, yep. and bird dog training. Um, if it has to do with upland hunting and or just the uplands in general, there's there's a stage and a section there for you. Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna speak and the path to the upland stage. Uh, they asked if I would talk about raising a family in the outdoors, which is a topic that I could go on for days and days about. And I, when they first asked if I would do it, I said, "Well, sure. What do you want me to talk about?" And then when they said that, I got really excited actually yeah. because that to me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I live in this world like you, we work in it, but we also play in it too. Um, and when I'm not working, I'm almost always playing in it with my kids and making the outdoor world, our normal world. I don't think of it like, um, I know some people do where it's a big, uh, big, you know, event to go out. I mean, certainly there are you know, like opening day and some of those trips we make very special, but I also make just our regular Tuesday night or Thursday night an outdoor opportunity, whether we go hunting or fishing or uh, preparing the game together at home, telling stories. It's just become our, our normal, I guess. I've made, I've made that something that's a big priority to my wife and I, uh, because it was a priority for me growing up too. My my parents did the same thing. I'm guessing you kind of lived that a similar lifestyle. Do you have any advice for me on the on the topic? Um, you're probably the expert on it, but no, it's it's I'm in the same boat. You know, I have two boys um, and a wife that just love to be outside. That same thing, just make everything built around it and exciting and fun. And it might not be what you and I want to go do. But like my kid got me into hammock. My oldest got me into hammock camping. Really? I would have never, I would have never done that. A bear but pinata. He, Do you go in the woods yeah, up north? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's, he read about it or saw it on YouTube or something like that. Sweet. He's like, let's go try it. So we went out to the hills, out to the black hills in South Dakota and did it. If I didn't have one of the best nights of my sleep, best nights of sleep ever, I would be, it's, it's fun. And so we started making, we did that about four or five years ago. I think he was nine or 10 when we went out and did it for the first time. And that's something that we do all the time now. And it's, I will, don't even pack a tent most of the time anymore. I just go and sleep in hammocks and have fun that way. Or, you know, it just, it just becomes part of your life and it's just so enjoyable. Yeah. Kind of a funny story with that. We went down this year for a family vacation down did the, did the trek, went to Orlando, Florida, um, went to Disney world and universal and all that fun stuff. And we were riding around on a roller coaster, this Haggard's ride in, at Universal. And there's a bunch of ponds that you circle around in this, on this, this roller coaster. All of a sudden, my oldest Blake's tapping me on the shoulder and he's like, there's a big bass down there. <laughs> he, as he's riding the roller coaster, he's looking at the ponds and sighting bass down in the ponds. Love it. It's just, it's just fun. It, it's so much more enjoyable to share it with your kids and your family. It really Until is. you experience it, you just, you can't explain it, but yeah, it, there's just, Oh, go ahead. No, there's just something about it. Just watching that excitement in your kid, mm -hmm. whether it's shooting their first animal or they're catching a big fish or just sitting out in the black Hills and looking at nature. It's just so much more fun. Yeah. I think the biggest thing for me is that I fail or succeed. I, I don't know that there's, I, I leave the field and I say that was a failure if we didn't get a bird or if we didn't take a shot, it's just bringing them along, just bringing yeah. them along. You know, people, sometimes they, they make it too difficult in their mind 
or maybe they just want that deer or that turkey so bad that they're, they don't want to risk messing up the hunt or being winded or having somebody talking or whatever it might be. So they, they, they wait and they wait yeah. and they wait until they think their kid is just going to, you know, not mess something up. And then they miss those years. Right. I think they miss those chances. And I, I guess I just, maybe I'm crazy for jumping into it, but I mean, my, my oldest, when he was three, he was in the turkey blind with me in the dark, in the morning. We got up early. We made it, you know, camouflage, clothes laid out the night before, and he was excited, yep. and we talked about it, and we built deer, or turkey blinds in his bedroom and things like that, and then he got to hear the gobble, but he was done hunting before they came out of the roost. <laughs> yep. He's like, let's go home, Dad. I want to be done. And I said, okay. But he heard the gobble, and that sparked something. And then the next time, he wanted to go again, and he stayed a little longer. And the next time, the yep. birds came out, they're strutting. Then he got to see success. So it it went, you know, my my actual harvest success has gone down, but my reward has gone way up. And I firmly believe that by bringing them along earlier and making it about them and not about me ha- is going to create uh, hunting partners for the rest of my life. And I, and I think it's happening. They're excited about it. We're reading books about different hunts. Now they want to try elk hunting more than anything. Um, it's just, it's fun. It's so fun to, to it live is. it through their eyes. And we all go through these seasons, uh, you know, like you talked about in your twenties or thirties where you're like, if I didn't beg my limit, it probably wasn't a success. And now it's, you know, you're transforming land and, bring wildlife in and now your kids are out hunting you and it's just the journey is so much fun and to include your family in it i'm just saying if you can't tell i'm excited to talk about this so uh, back it is it's it's an investment i had the same thing you know do you take your kid out do you not take your kid out because you're probably not gonna they're not gonna want to be out there as long as you want to be there but you gotta look at it that you're investing every time you go out that's putting a coin in the bank yeah and like you said building to that lifelong hunting partner Look at it that way. And now my kid will outsit me. That's so fantastic. That is, that's, I love to hear that. I love to hear those stories. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about, I guess, uh, when I when I speak on the stage. Uh, so if you go to Pheasants Forever's website, you're going to see a link that you can go to Pheasant Fest and you're going to see the exhibitor list. You're going to see everybody that's there. Uh, a lot of the partners that we work with will be there. We are going to have our own booth, The Flush, and... Basically, what we like to do is meet all of you, talk with you, share stories. Um, we will be there all all three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I will be speaking, I believe, Saturday, uh, 11.30, I think, or 11, something like that. Um, and then the, the tremendous honor of uh, emceeing the Saturday Night National Pheasant Fest banquet this year, uh, I'm I'm nervous about that, but I've been asked uh, to do nail that. It. I I really when when Bob asked me, Bob St. Pierre asked me, I was like, "Come on, you got to be kidding me!" There's got to be somebody <laughs> that is uh, way more qualified for that, and he he insisted that he wanted me to consider it. And so, yeah, I'm gonna I'll I'll MC that banquet. Uh, I will probably stutter and uh, sweat, but um, it's really just gonna be an honor because I get to be in that room in that space talking with people like you, Matt, uh, people that might be listening to the show. Hopefully you come, um, and people that just care about hunting and this lifestyle and conservation, wildlife, and just this world that we live in. And we just get to celebrate that. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I've been talking about the Onyx Hunt app since we started producing this show, and that's simply because I use it on every single hunt. Their app tells me everything that I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that I can legally hunt on. The Onyx Hunt app shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It also tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land, federal lands, walk-in access properties, etc. The app also has new features this year that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. If you hunt grouse in the north woods, there's a timber cut layer to help you find ideal habitat. If you're planning to hunt North Dakota this year, then there's a very important layer that has been added to the app that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the tools Onyx Maps give us. 
And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. For generations, bird hunters have hit the fields carrying some form of a vest or game pouch on their backs. Sometimes the vests rip, tear, and fall apart. Other times, they are downright uncomfortable. That's why Chief Upland designed a vest that's durable, comfortable, and fits your needs. Their new Upland vest is fully customizable to fit the size and shape of all hunters. Plus, you decide where you want to attach your shell pouches and accessories. Birds can be front-loaded into the game pouch, and they fit nicely in the back without sagging. That's a big deal because the weight disbursement on your back and shoulders won't tire you out, even with a full pouch of birds. The vest itself is extremely lightweight, weighing only 2.56 pounds. The material is built out of Kodura fabric, which is the same waterproof fabric used in tactical military gear. You can confidently hunt with a Chief Upland vest in some of the world's toughest environments. Order your Chief Upland vest now to make sure that you're ready for your next hunt. Push further and hunt longer with a game-changing vest from Chief Upland, built for your pursuit. Uh, what else are you looking forward to at Pheasant Fest, Matt? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to nail down one thing. It really is. There's just so much going on. But I'm looking, like, yeah, I'm looking forward to going to the banquets in the evenings because it's 800 of your best friends in the room. And yeah, with having gone to all of them through the years, watching that grow, I mean, you can sit down at any table. Mm-hmm. And I'll guarantee you, you can strike up a conversation with that person. And within three minutes, there's probably a connection somewhere. Either you've hunted the same places or done a lot of the same things. And it's just hanging out with a bunch of friends and everybody's just having a good time. Um, and that's where just remember when you're emceeing, it's 800 of your best friends out there. So there's nothing to be nervous about. <laughs> right. Uh, and, I, I built myself up to 500, Matt. So dang it. <laughs> Why yeah. did you have to say 800? I don't uh, know. I just threw a I think I, got, I think I'm not feeling well. I'm probably not going to make it <laughs> anymore. Yeah. And then uh, we, uh, you know, for the flush, are, are still, and I wanted to talk about it today, but we're still finalizing the details on it. We're going to do a live flush podcast where we um, invite listeners to come and join us and uh, ask questions, share stories. We'll have an open mic there for them. Right, Brandon? Yep, open mic. So they can come up and we can do a live show together. I'm looking forward to that. We're going to nail down the details and then we'll, we'll talk about it each week before the show uh, arrives here. March 11th through the 13th, is that right? Yes. Gotcha. Yep. And if you're traveling, I know a few of my hunting friends from around the country have said they're coming uh, from other parts of the country. It's it's all really uh, convenient because you've got hotels uh, basically attached to the convention center that you're hosting the event at, right? Yep. Yeah, there's, there's several hotels right around there. And heck, if you're really looking for some nightlife Saturday night after you're done emceeing... I heard there's a Tool concert going on right next door. Really? Yeah. There's, Are you there's going? There's stuff going on. Oh, I'm not going. I'm <laughs> yeah. too old for that. <laughs> but no, it's, it is. It's really convenient. And it's all in one space. So you can kind of just wander around. And it's not like you have to jump from building to building or something like that. It's, it's just a fun place to hang out and meet new people. And that's the best part about it is just talking to people. Yeah. And there's a, there's a main Pheasants Forever booth there. When you walk in right at the main entrance, yep. I assume that's going to be the case again this year. And then typically all the Pheasants Forever, em- or I should say Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever employees, you all kind of have your, not jerseys, but you all have um, <laughs> Pheasants Forever, the same, uh, whether it's a vest or a shirt or something, yep. so that people can find you and, and talk. Um, and then yep. I... Look- Look for the sage green shirts and black vests this year. Okay. Fantastic. Matt, where, where are you going to be at for most of the show? If people want to talk be, specifically Habitat with you. Yep. I'll be back at the Habitat stage and the Habitat help desk areas where I'm going to be spending my time um, just kind of mingling around and talking to folks. Gotcha. Anything else that we should cover off on before we sign off today? I think we got, we ran a whole gamut of places. It was, this was fun. I like this conversation. I do too. We do this for hours. And I think the main point that we wanted, a lot of points to take away today, but if you see a dog in somebody's front yard and you think that dog is lost, <laughs> maybe at, knock on the front door. Right. Just maybe. Maybe knock on the front Seems door. Simple. Yeah. And find yeah. out if that dog belongs to that house. 
should live if it if that dog lives there. And if the dog does, do not take the dog. Chances are, if it's not leaving the yard, <laughs> it belongs in that yard. It belongs. It look. It looks for tracks. If there's tracks in the snow, probably another good indication that. Yeah. Unreal. Oh, <laughs> unreal. Takes a cake. Matt, no one takes a cake. Oh gosh, I, I'm really grateful that my dog didn't get stolen. That's what I've yeah. thought about a few times there, um, and so. Yeah, uh, a lot, a lot to ponder. Uh, appreciate you taking the time today. I cannot wait to talk to you in person at Pheasant yeah. Fest in a couple of weeks, and also to see the transformation on your property. And then again, another reminder for people: if they have friends or they they think they have some land that might qualify, where do you direct them? Where should they go to learn more about the CRP program that's currently in open enrollment? Yeah, so there's a couple of options there. If you, if you know the first place I would go is if you go to the Pheasants Forever website um, down at the bottom. There's a Find a Biologist section. Click on that and see if you have a Farm Bill biologist from Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever in your area. Um, that's an excellent place to start because um, they're they're well rehearsed not only on the USDA programs but other cost share that's out there for producers. But if you don't happen to have one in your area, um, just go to your local USDA service center. Every county has one. Um, and swing in there and, and walk over to the Natural Resources Conservation Service and start talking to those folks. And they're, they're going to get you where you need to be. Perfect. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Appreciate your time today and all the work you guys are doing in the Dakotas and across the country to help people like us that love to watch birds erupt out of the grass. I, I have heard from a few of you listeners, I, I think three weeks ago, I asked if you know a conservation officer that would join us on the show, I want to talk to him and hear stories from the field. And I have, Brandon, three different conservation officers on the line. And Not I can't wait. Yeah, I know. I cannot wait to talk with them. I don't know how it's going to work out yet. I'm still going to work through that. But the stories have to be great. Oh, absolutely. Uh, That'll be a lot of fun to do. Matt, you, do you, this is the last question. Do you have any great <laughs> stories that you can remember from your hunting career that is just like, you can't make it up? Oh man. There's so many of them. <laughs> a favorite? Um, you don't have to, I, you don't have to I choose I don't know if I have a favorite. I'm just trying to think back and my dad was a game warden. So. Oh really? I, we might have four stories. now. Yeah. He, uh, I can remember and I got lucky. I grew up, in the eighties and I could ride along with them. Really? And so I went out, that's where my summers and stuff were was riding around in the game warden truck, checking fishermen and hunters. And he always said I had a knack of bringing out the crazies when I was along. Cause <laughs> I remember him getting yelled at a lot. <laughs> Did you have any, any, uh, like sting missions where you planted a deer, robotic deer out in the field to get shot at or anything fun like that? I never got to go on those. The most fun I ever had was we were out checking fishermen one time and they had, a, a, you know, they had multi-jurisdiction um, and a cop had pulled over a guy with a whole bunch of drugs. And mm-hmm. So I got to go racing through Watertown with lights and sirens on so that he could go back that up. And I remember him telling me, okay, if anything happens, just get on the floor and just lay there. Whoa. So that was fun. That was exciting. As a, that's I think pretty that's exciting. Probably, rush. Yeah, I was probably ten at that time, and that was one of the last times I got to ride with him. Well, yeah, I, <laughs> I think I even then he's like, "This probably wasn't a good thing." Yeah, no kidding. You saw too much. I I did a I filmed a, an episode up in Northwest Minnesota with a retired conservation officer, and we're in the field walking, and he he's got a limp, and I said I mentioned or he mentioned something about going really slowly. And he laughed at himself, said, I don't have any problem going slowly because I walk with a limp. And then I mentioned, or I asked him, I said, what, what, have you always had that? And he said, no, I had a, we had a sting operation for a known poacher in our area. We put a deer out there in the field and he shot at the deer and then we turned on the lights and he fled the scene and they chased him and he goes, it was not worth it. It was so stupid. Or he didn't turn the lights on. That's what it was. They were trying to come in fast around him and cut him off so he couldn't leave. And he didn't have his lights on and he didn't see the culvert in the ditch. And he, his vehicle rolled and he crashed. And it was a terrible, terrible, tragic um, event. He did say they caught the, the poacher, sure. but it was not worth it. Right. Because now he's forever 
um, disabled from that mission. And so the stories of a gay Martin, we're going to get into quite a few more of them. I maybe got sidetracked here now, guys. We'll, we'll hang it up this, <laughs> at this point. Matt, thanks again. Uh, thank you all for listening. Can't wait to meet so many of you at Pheasant Fest in a few weeks. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Uh, we've got plenty more coming up. Our TV our TV shows are streaming. If you missed any of the episodes, check out our YouTube channel. Every week a new show gets added until the season is done. Subscribe so you don't miss any of them. You can watch them in their entirety. Send us a message. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram so you know what we're up to. And we will try our best to keep you posted. The, the off-season doesn't have to be boring. Brandon, it doesn't have to be boring. I know you're, no. I know you're chomping over there. You want to get back in the field? Uh, absolutely. Yep. You had a big season last year, walking in water. Huge season. Everybody Huge. heard about it. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely. much luck. Absolutely. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank, reminding you to take the time to introduce someone new to the field. Mm-hmm.